Well, welcome to The Grove. If you're here for the first time or maybe the first time back in a while, if you're friends or family of someone and you're visiting, we are so glad that you are with us today. My name is Stephen and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in week two of a sermon series called Miraculous. Now, as you can maybe infer from the kids' kind of time that we just had, we're talking about miracles. And the reason that we're talking about miracles is because we contend and feel strongly that if we go through this life and that the pace and the speed and that kind of frenetic energy that we carry, especially during this season, and we miss the miracles that are happening all around us, it's almost like we experience a two-dimensional version of Christmas. And in fact, as we look to the stories of Scripture and look at how each of these stories that kind of make up the larger Christmas story, as we dig into these stories, what we realize is they're drenched, they're soaked in the miraculous. And by exploring those stories, we might actually be able to rediscover and experience the miraculous in our own life. Now, my guess is, if I'm kind of painting in broad strokes, that all of you here today kind of fall into one of three categories as it relates to miracles. You either believe they can't happen, they don't happen, or it's possible and they do happen. Now, if you're of kind of the opinion that they do happen and it's possible, good. This will make a lot of sense later in the sermon. If you're of the opinion that they can't happen, it's because you believe, likely, in the laws of nature and the laws of science, that anything that is observable in the world is what is knowable in the world. And so if you can't observe it, if it can't be measured, if it can't be tested, peer-reviewed, and then confirmed, it's likely not plausible and it's likely not true. And then there's the category of you that believe that miracles don't happen. And really what that means is you believe that maybe they once happened, but they don't happen any anymore. And we kind of talked about that last week. We talked about how over the last 500 years, kind of our understanding of the way that the divine interacts with our world and interacts with each one of us has changed over the last 500 years. And so really there was a period of time where miracles were possible, which is why we can read them in scripture and, oh, that, yeah, I, I buy that. Yeah. But today, no, that's, that's not possible for us today. But for this morning, I want to just focus on kind of that group that believes that miracles can't happen because everything that is true is measurable and observable. And there's kind of a flaw in this argument because there's a whole category of our world that recognizes that there are things that are true beyond what is observable. Well, let me say it differently. What is actually true is that there are things beyond what is observable, that can't fully be understood unless they're experienced. There's a, a scene, and maybe at least top five, maybe not my favorite movie, but top five movies of all time, Good Will Hunting. Any fans of Good Will Hunting? Good, 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 good. Okay, so some of you will be tracking with me this morning. So there's a scene, and it's kind of like the, kind of the moment in the story where everything shifts. Now, if you're not familiar, if it's been a minute since you've seen Good Will Hunting, it primarily revolves around two characters. Uh, Will, played by Matt Damon, and Sean, played by Robin Williams. Now, Matt Damon is a genius. He is uh, like noticeably more intelligent 
than everybody else he comes in contact with. He's able to read and retain information easily. And so really what you see all throughout kind of the first half of the movie is all of the ways that he knows more than everybody else around him. All of the facts that he's retained from the books that he's read. Sean, Robin Williams' character, is his court-appointed therapist. Because of kind of some trouble in Matt Damon's life and childhood, he's an orphan navigated through the foster system, yada, yada, yada. He's now kind of this unruly college-age semi-adult who's trying to navigate the world. And he comes into contact with Sean, Robin Williams' character. Now, there's a moment in this movie where Matt Damon is in Robin Williams' office because Robin Williams is his court-appointed therapist, and they're having, Robin Williams is trying to kind of break into kind of the emotional world of Matt Damon. And Matt Damon is guarded and defensive, and he's having none of it. He's this cynical, brilliant person, and he keeps everybody at an arm's distance. And in the course of the conversation, Matt Damon notices a painting that Robin Williams has painted. And starts to ask questions about the painting, and using the painting, he starts to critique the painting, and then uses the painting as a parallel for all of the ways that Robin Williams' life has been a failure, has kind of never really amounted to all that it could be. And in the middle of this conversation, Robin Williams gets frustrated, he kind of noticeably is, you know, angry, and the meeting's cut short. And then the next scene is Robin Williams and Matt Damon sitting on a bench in a park. And Robin Williams sits down and says that kind of after the conversation that had just happened the day before, that Robin Williams stays up all night wrestling with kind of what Matt Damon has uncovered to be true about Robin Williams' life. All the ways that it's kind of been marked by disappointment and sadness and failure and kind of a lack of becoming all that it could be. And then Robin Williams pivots and says, but then I had a realization, and after that realization... I slept like a baby, is what he says. And then Rob Williams goes on to share the observation that he has about Matt Damon. And the observation is really simple. And I'm kind of summarize this conversation that they have, but go back. It's an incredible scene and one I can't show in church. So the summary goes like this. Rob Williams says, you're just a punk kid who's never left Boston. You actually don't know anything. You only know what you've read to be true in books. And then Robin Williams begins to go through categories of things that Matt Damon knows, that he's observed, but he's never actually experienced. Because what, there is a level of truth deeper than what is observable. And this is a truth that is something that we can experience, something that we can participate in. And so he says, listen, you may know all there is to know about art, all of the books you might have read on art history. You might know everything there is to know about Michelangelo. He says, but you don't know what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never stood there and stared up at that beautiful ceiling. And he goes on to say, you may know about friendship, or you may know about war, or you may know about love, but you've never actually experienced it. And then he goes on to talk about, Rob Williams goes on to talk about his own life's experience. He says, you don't know what it's like to sit by your wife for two months in the hospital while she's fighting cancer, holding her hand, and the nurses look at you and can see in your eye that visiting hours don't apply to you. 
while Robin Williams is sharing a reality that Matt Damon has never experienced. He says, there are things that you can know, that you can observe about the world, but there is something far deeper than what is merely observable. And that's the realm of experiential. That's the realm we can only get to by participating in those parts of life. And this scene, I share it because not only is it moving and reveal a greater truth, but I think it's one of the reasons that miracles are hard for us today. Because of all that we know. Because of all that we can observe about our world. And yet there is something about the miraculous that unless you experience it, unless you participate in it, you just can't quite fully grasp. And so this morning, I want to look at a very short story that invites us to kind of reevaluate our willingness to participate in the miraculous. Now, if I was to do like kind of like a family feud style poll, some of my favorite game shows, but if I was to do like one of those family feuds style polls and I was like, we surveyed 100 people and the top five parts of the Christmas story, you know, and then I'd ask you to shout out answers, you know, we'd get, you know, the manger and the baby and, you know, Mary and probably in the top five of answers, I'd throw the board and say, survey says, and one of you would shout out the star. The star seems to be a central kind of theme throughout kind of the, the parts of the Christmas story that we love. And yet the star, I think, as we look into it, and as I want to show you today, is actually a miracle. Now, this is the definition that we used for miracle last week. This is kind of lifted from Merriam-Webster. And this says that a miracle is a surprising but welcome event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific causes, usually, usually attributed to divine agency. Now, this definition of miracle assumes what we've already said, that everything that we can trust and is, that is true about the world is contained by natural and scientific explanation. But once again, not, not all that is true is that which is observable. There is more to that, and that's that which is experiential. And so, as we look into the language that's used in Scripture, and as we look into the word miracle itself, it also means not just a surprising but welcoming event that can't be explained by natural scientific causes or attributed to divine agency, but in Greek it also means sign, like S-I-G-N. Like a miracle is really just a sign. And signs, simply put, they point to something else. And so as we see through Scripture, they talk about miracles as events, as unbelievable acts of God's power and agency in the world. But they also talk about miracles as signs, as symbols that point to something else. And as we look at the story of the star and the miracle that it contains, I think we'll find that that's exactly what's happening. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. This is typically a passage that's read kind of after Christmas on kind of Epiphany Sunday where we celebrate the birth of Christ and then the discovery of the birth of Christ. And so this is not kind of traditional Advent scripture. I know some of you are going to be deeply disappointed. You're like, oh, well, they didn't do the typical Advent stuff. But I think this story 
speaks to the way that we can experience the miraculous in our own life. So, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what this star, as it's described in Scripture, could have been. Some people have kind of postulated that it's something that's happening with the alignment of the planets and Jupiter and the moons. And in this perfect moment, in this particular period of time, there was this light that emanated. And again, because we're trying to describe something using that which is observable. Another explanation is that this was actually a comet. This was something that kind of traced along the sky with this long tail and it eventually kind of oriented itself in the night sky and it positioned itself above the house, which allowed the wise men to follow. Ultimately, we don't, we don't know what the star is other than what Scripture is trying to get us to know about the star. That it's a sign that's pointing to something that God is trying to say and share and reveal to us in the world. Now, what I think is interesting about this story is, and what's true about signs, is signs are only good when we look for them. They only work when we're paying attention and we're looking for signs. How many of you have had the experience where you've been at a four-way stop and somebody just blew through a stop sign? The stop sign was there. You watch them not see the sign and then keep going. Well, that only happens because the sign can't force people to stop. It only communicates the action that's desired. The same is true about this star. The only reason that the wise men show up in Jerusalem looking for the baby Jesus is because likely these were men who spent their lives focused on the sky. They were kind of the NASA of their time period, probably from what was left of the Babylonian Empire somewhere in kind of the Persian Empire. These were wise, trained, learned people who studied the sky looking for astrological phenomenon that might communicate something greater that's happening in the world. They were people who were on watch for signs, on watch for miracles. And my guess is the reason most of us or some of us at least don't feel like the world that we live in is miraculous, that miracles don't happen anymore or maybe can't happen, is simply because we've stopped looking. We don't see them. We don't notice them. And so we blow right past them and through them. Now, the other thing that I think is interesting is what happens after this passage. So the wise men, they see the star. They follow it, maybe some 600 miles. We don't know exactly how long it took them, months definitely, maybe up to a year plus. But these men are following this thing in the sky, this sign that they are trusting points to something greater that's happening in the world, speaks to something divine that is occurring. And then they get to Herod. King Herod, at the time was an unbelievably accomplished kind of ruler. Not always in the positive sense. He was unbelievably ruthless. He killed his own family, 
but he was also a highly accomplished kind of builder. And there are unbelievable kind of architectural feats that Herod kind of accomplished. Well, Herod was consumed with his own fame, his own power, and his own glory. And so he eliminated any of the potential successors in his lineage and focused on how he built these structures that would survive him, that would then speak to and testify to, in a similar way, his own glory, his own kingdom, all that Herod could accomplish. And so you have two groups of people who recognize this sign. You have a group of people who come from the east, and they come searching, looking for this baby who's going to be the king of the Jews, who's going to be the promised one. There's something special, different, that God is trying to do through this baby as indicated by this star. And what have they done? They've come to pay him homage. They brought gifts. They ultimately will come, they'll find the baby, and then they'll kneel down and they'll worship him. But Herod sees the star too. Herod recognizes the sign. Herod just comes to a different conclusion about what the sign means. For Herod, it speaks of fear. It speaks of the ways that his own kingdom is at risk. The ways that his lineage is threatened. And so while the wise men's response to the sign and the star is to follow it, wherever it leads them, to come and to bow down, to be obedient, to pay homage and to worship and then give gifts to this baby. Herod is the opposite. Herod becomes threatened. He invites the wise men in. He says, tell me the exact time that this star appeared and where its location is pointing to. He wants the information, not because, as he says in scripture, that he wants to come and pay homage, but ultimately this is an attempted assassination plot. Herod doesn't want to risk the potentiality that his kingdom ends, that he's not in a place of power anymore. And after that doesn't work because the wise men don't give him all of the information that's needed, what does Herod do? If you're familiar with the story, he makes sure that all babies, all baby boys that are born in this time period are killed. And just to be certain that the information that the wise men gave him, maybe it wasn't exactly correct. He kind of paints a two-year window. He says any baby born in this two-year period, any baby boy born in this two-year period, kill them. It's referenced as the slaughter of the innocents in Scripture because Herod's response to the star is fear. The wise men's is hope. I think for us, as we think about the ways that we might either be paying attention to or ignoring the miracles, the signs that exist in our life, part of the question has to be why. For some of us, we think miracles can't happen because they're not observable. They don't follow the rules of nature and science. But for others of us, we don't want that to be true because what that would mean about the world that we live in what it would mean about maybe our life, our kingdom that we've built. We're resistant to that because if God is active and present in this world, then maybe it's going to require something of us to be obedient. Maybe it's going to require us to go places that we don't want to go, to follow in ways that we aren't really wanting to follow. It requires sacrifice and obedience and devotion to follow those signs, to listen to where God is leading us. And 
ultimately, it's a whole lot more fun to build our own kingdom. And so, as we think about the miracles and signs that might be around us, one, are we looking for them? And two, how do we respond to them? Do we respond in fear or do we respond in hope? I think as we kind of take in totality all the ways that Scripture talks about miracles, ultimately, it kind of references them in kind of two categories that are related. The first category is like a great sign, a great work, a wonder. That's why we sing in that, that song, Star of Wonder. You know, this, it's this thing of unbelievable explanation. We don't have words to describe because it goes beyond what's observable and true about the world around us. But the other, again, like I mentioned, is a sign that points to something. But that's something that it points to is God's presence and activity in the world. And so when you take those two definitions and usage of the word miracle and you put them together, ultimately what you get is this definition. A miracle is a work of God that points to the presence of God. It eliminates language of science and nature and observation. It taps into the experiential and and invites us in to participate. And so if I was to give you this definition and say, okay, now evaluate your life as you look back at it. Where have you noticed a work of God that pointed to the presence of God in your life? That changes my awareness of the miracles in my life, the miracles here at this church. You know, in the announcement, Allie talks about kind of the unbelievable increase in generosity as we are looking towards 2023, and she used the language miracle. You know, maybe some of you kind of laughed it off or chuckled it off because we're in this series and we're in a church and, you know, we don't have to follow the rules of how the world actually works. But what if that's exactly the right word? The fact that maybe you're here today sitting next to someone who you never thought you'd be in church with. Or maybe you're the person here today you never thought you'd be in church. Perhaps that's a miracle. Perhaps that's a work of God that points to the presence of God. For some of us, we have gone through life not paying attention to the signs, maybe out of fear, maybe just out of kind of ignorance and preoccupation with all that we're doing and all that we have going on in our life. But what we miss when we live that way is the opportunity to participate in what God is doing here and now. What happens if we change the way that we see the miracles around us? What happens when we begin to see them as indications of what God has done, of what God is doing, and what God will continue to do? If that's the definition of a miracle, of work of God that points to the presence of God, then our, every moment of our life is a miracle. Over the last 500 years, we've convinced ourselves that we exist and operate as independent agents by our intellect and power and prowess. No, all of this is here only but by the grace of God. It's a work of God that points to the presence of God. And may we have the eyes to see it. So in these next moments, we're going to participate in another miracle. We just use a different language. We call it a sacrament. Once again, it is a sign 
that speaks to the work of God, that points to the presence of God and the way that God is at work in our life. And my hope to the sacrament and the miracle of communion is that you'll respond in the same way that I hope that you begin to respond to the miracles in your life, that you would see them as invitations to participate, to experience God's activity and presence and work in the world. That it's not just something that you don't have an explanation for, but it's an invitation to come and to see and to follow and ultimately an invitation that leads you to Jesus. So let me pray for our time and then we'll prepare to celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. Gracious God, we come before you this morning and we extend our hearts to you. God, help us shed the blinders that we may wear, the ways that we are ignorant or closed off or cynical to ways that you're at work in the world. God, help us to see that you are here, that you are present, and that you are still working in our lives. And God, help us to accept the invitation to participate in that work. God, it is truly a miraculous world that we live in, and you are a miraculous God. We pray this in your name. Amen.